remember years ago when Sydney and I first got married, we, we began to discover that we both had this kind of personality um, type that was very similar in one area. We learned that both of us are really passionate about being efficient, especially when it comes to things that we don't like doing. So in other words, when it comes to the things that we have to do on a day-to-day basis, the chores around the house, the things around the house on a week-to-week basis, we began to discover that we are both profoundly passionate about being efficient because why in the world would you want to spend more time doing the things that you don't like than you have to? So I remember very early on in our marriage, we kind of sat down and we began to figure out, okay, what are you really good at? What am I really good at? How do we begin to divide up these chores so we can kind of conquer and get stuff done? And so we divided up who does the finances and who deals with the bills and who does the yard work. And one of the things that we discovered on very, very early is that um, Sydney is the only one in our house that can cook. Like, I can't cook at all. It's not because she's a woman. It's because I'm an idiot. She can, she can cook. Uh, it's amazing. And so we discovered that along with her cooking, she probably needed to be the one to go to the grocery store because she'd go to the grocery store and she knew the ingredients that she wanted. She knew how much of the ingredients she would need. She knew exactly what type of things that she would need. And we discovered pretty early on in our marriage that whenever she went to the grocery, not only did she get it done three times as quickly, but she'd come back with everything we actually need. Anytime I go, it takes twice as long and then I have to make six trips back to get the things that I left. But every now and then there'll be these, these moments where, uh, you know, I'll just kind of get courageous and I'll say, hey, Sydney, can I go to the grocery store for you? And she'll kind of roll her eyes and I have to talk her into it. Like, let me take that load off of you, baby. Like, let me, let me do that. And she's like, you're making more work for me, but she'll make the list. And then she'll share the list with me and she's trying to explain it. And I'm like, don't explain it. I can read. How insulting is this? But inevitably, there'll be that moment where I'm standing there clueless in the aisle of the grocery store trying to figure out what on earth does she want me to get. And this happened about three weeks ago. I'm standing there, and I'm looking at my list. I left my phone at home, so I can't Google a picture of it. I don't even know what this thing looks like. And I come to this item on my list, rice noodles. I didn't know what rice noodles were. I know what rice is. I know what noodles are. I had no idea they had a love child and what it is that they've created. I'm like rice noodles and so I'm standing in this sea of pasta trying to figure out what in the world is rice noodles and I'm too prideful to ask anybody. About 20 minutes go by, seriously. And this lady walks up who looked like she had a proficient mastery of all things in the pasta aisle. And I said, do you have any idea what rice noodles are? And she just laughed and she said, you mean these? And it was a thing that was like literally right in front of my face. 15 minutes I've been staring at it just humiliated. And have you ever had one of these moments where all of a sudden somebody shows you what it is that you're looking for and you all of a sudden have the ability to see it all around you? It's like rice noodles were everywhere, (laughs) all around me. And I couldn't see them because I didn't know what it was that I was looking for. I remember leaving and just kind of having this like this moment of revelation that sometimes in order to see, we need someone to illuminate what it is that we're supposed to be looking for. And that there are times you and I don't have the ability to see, not because it's not there, but because you haven't trained your eyes to see what it is that you're looking for. I believe when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he's not just teaching us the words to say, he's teaching us what it is that he wants us to see. And so when he teaches us to pray our Father, he's not just giving us a new mantra there, he's saying, I want you to see God as an intimate, relational being who wants to know you just like your earthly father does. Jesus isn't just giving us what to say. He's giving us how to see. Or he says, hey, here's how you pray. You pray that his name is hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done. 
Jesus is teaching us how to see. Or we come to the part in the prayer today that we're going to deal with. That things would be on earth as they are in heaven. And Jesus isn't just teaching us a little tagline to throw into our prayers. Jesus is teaching us what to look for. My question, church, is if Jesus Christ answered the Lord's prayer today, would you be able to see it? Like if Jesus answered that prayer, heaven on earth, would you have the eyes to notice it? Because all throughout Jesus' ministry was both this declaration and this demonstration that heaven was closer than the people thought. And the question that always followed was, do you have the eyes to see it? Because Jesus knew that it was possible to be in the presence of heavenly things and miss it. Now, there's a couple assumptions that I have as we come to this prayer this morning. I want us to, to all be on the same page. Here's my first assumption about the Lord's Prayer, especially in regards to may things be on earth as they are in heaven. Here's my assumption is that things currently are not on earth as they are in heaven. Can you shake your head if you agree with that? That you just like look around and all the brokenness and all of the chaos, it's clear that although God has begun to answer the prayer, that, that, that prayer has not been fully answered and that there's still work to do. And so that's my first assumption is that things currently on earth are not as they are in heaven. But there's a second assumption this morning, and I think it's very, very important, and that is that Jesus would never command us to pray a prayer that Jesus doesn't want to answer. That Jesus would never tell us to pray, pray that things on earth would be as they are in heaven unless Jesus was passionate about answering that prayer. Do you agree with that? And so when Jesus teaches us to pray this way, he's not just inviting us to say some new words, he's inviting us to see what it is that God is up to. You see, you know, there's all this talk about revival these days. People talk about revival all the time, but I'm convinced that if revival was standing right in front of us, most of us would not be any better at seeing the, the revival than I was at seeing the noodle standing there in the aisle of the grocery store. I think a lot of us, we, we've made our understanding of revival so small. Our understanding of revival is that our worship services would be filled with energy and with joy and that things in here would be great. And that's a small part of revival. But I want you to hear me very clearly on this. Revival is not ultimately about God just inhabiting the church. Revival is about God inhabiting every square inch of his creation that the glory of God begins to fill everything and that although it starts among God's people, revival never stays here. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Say that with me, on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is serious. He's serious. And he wants us to pray as though he is a truth teller. But do you have the eyes to see it? See, this is what I love about Jesus' ministry. He would declare, hey, remember Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is so close, you can reach out and touch it. In other words, Jesus is saying, heaven is not far off. It's not just distant. It's not this future thing only. God is doing something right here and right now. And he would declare this boldly, but Jesus didn't just declare it. Everywhere he went, he would demonstrate what life looked like when heaven got its way. And so Jesus would see a dead person, and he'd say, there's no dead people in heaven, and he'd raise them to life. Jesus would see a sick person, and he'd say, hey, there's no sick people in heaven, and he'd heal them. Jesus would see a sinner, and he'd say, there's no sinners in heaven, and he would forgive them. And everywhere Jesus went, he was inviting people to recognize what happens when heaven gets heaven's way. 
And he turns to his disciples and he says, I don't want you to just say these things. I want you to see these things. And I want you to arrange your life as though it's true. But my question is, if we're going to recognize heaven breaking into earth, do we have the eyes to see what heaven looks like? Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to spend just a couple of minutes together. Revelation chapter 5, are you guys here with me this morning? You doing okay? I love this, this moment in Revelation. It's the, one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's written by one of Jesus' very best friends, a guy named John. And at this point, John's an old man. And it seems from his perspective as if heaven is no longer getting its way. John's living in very difficult times, and it seems like hell is breaking out, that hell has been more powerful, and John is unbelievably discouraged. And I love this moment in the book of Revelation because Jesus shows up to John, and Jesus knew that in hard times, John didn't need another book, he didn't need another conference, he didn't need a life coach. What John needed in a hard time was a fresh vision of what God was up to. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about Jesus pulling back the curtain helping us see what it is that God is up to. And he gives us this picture in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. He gives John this vision of what heaven looks like. And it's this vision of people and angels and creatures all surrounding the throne room of God, worshiping the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in the middle of this kind of epic worship service that he, he witnesses in heaven that they begin singing the song. I want you to see this, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. This is the song that they were singing. It says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, talking to Jesus here, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and every language and every nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I'm going to say uh, read that one more time. Uh, they said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This is the word of God. There's this moment where John gets this vision of what's going on in heaven. And although heaven is beyond our description, I want to make sure we have a couple of insights into what's happening there so we know what it is that God will do as he begins to answer that prayer on earth that it is in heaven right here. I love this kind of first picture of heaven that he gives us in verse 9. Is that heaven is a place of unrestrained worship. And once you see this, it says that all of the, the creatures, all of the people, all of the angels are encircled around the throne of God. And they're declaring, you God are worthy. You alone are worthy. Worship is literally just ascribing worth to someone. And you see this moment in heaven where God is unashamedly at the center of all things. In heaven, God is the main attraction. He's not the sideshow. In heaven, he is the thing in which all things find their orbit. And there's this moment where John gets a glimpse into what's happening in heaven. And what he sees in heaven is this place of unrestrained worship and worth and joy being heaped upon God. I remember years ago, one of my good friends who was a part of this church, and I would say this if he was here, I'm not gossiping about him, good friend of mine. The whole time he was here at Ethos, can I just be honest with you, he was a casual cultural Christian at best. He had gotten in the water, he had said some prayers, he would serve occasionally, attend occasionally, do some things occasionally. Casual cultural Christian at best, that's where some of you are. I remember he and his wife moved, and they went to another city. 
And it was something in that move, the Spirit of God just began to awaken his heart. And all of a sudden, my, my buddy's life became about the worship and the exaltation of Jesus. He didn't quit his job. He didn't move to Tanzania. Like he didn't, you know, he didn't like burn down his house and do anything radical. But all of a sudden, this like ordinary guy began revolving every aspect of his life around worship to King Jesus. And every time I'm in his presence, I feel like I'm getting a taste test of heaven. It's a moment where I go, man, this is what it looks like to worship. Like every time we stand and worship, it's a taste test of heaven. Every time you have that conversation that exalts King Jesus, it's a taste test of heaven. Every time you align your life around the things, it's a taste test of heaven. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is close. Can you see it? Do you have eyes to see what happens when heaven begins to come near? Ordinary people like you and I, we quit worshiping our jobs. We quit worshiping our sexuality. We quit worshiping everybody's opinions of us. And all of a sudden, we allow God to elevate into the only place he deserves, and that is the center of all things. Does that make sense? I wish our church was alive for God to be in the middle of us, to be there. You see this in heaven. There's worship. There's worship, there's adoration for God. There's awe of God. So it happens in heaven. And as that comes close on earth, we begin to sense it. But it's not just worship, you keep going in verse nine. Heaven is not just marked by worship, it's marked by redemption. He says, because you alone, Lord, have purchased people with your blood. That's a, a crazy statement. Those of you that aren't Christians, I'm just going to trust that the Spirit of God will awaken your heart to what that means. But it's this amazing reality that heaven is going to be populated with people like you and I that had shipwrecked their life and only the blood of Christ Jesus could get us in. It's this understanding that we don't get in because we're so good or so moral or so servant-hearted or so generous but that we get in because we were the affection of Christ Jesus himself. And heaven has this grand understanding that only the blood of Jesus could pave a way for us to find ourselves around the throne. You wanna taste heaven? Be in the presence of someone that knows only Jesus Christ could clean up their mess. You wanna taste heaven? Be in the presence of someone who understands that only the Lord could do this. Remember years ago, there's a woman in our church who, when she first started coming to our church, she was a prostitute. And I remember her coming and giving her life to the Lord. And there was this moment where she was getting ready to get in the water. And she was literally talking. She said, I think I'm going to make the water filthy just by getting in it. And I said, here's the beauty of Christ is that your dirt doesn't rub off on him. His cleanliness rubs off on you. She got in the water. It was heaven coming near. It was heaven coming near. These moments where we experience the redemption of Christ. Heaven is marked by worship. Heaven is marked by redemption. You keep going. And heaven is marked by unity. I love this. He says, you alone, Lord, are worthy to be praised because with your blood you purchase. Look at verse 9 and 10. You purchase people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Now, I want you to see this because what you picture in the future is so important in regards to heaven. Do you realize that in heaven, heaven is not going to be marked by uniformity? 
Heaven's going to be marked by unity amidst our diversity. That in heaven, we're not going to be just like disembodied spirits floating around singing songs. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that you're given a new resurrection body. And I don't know what it is about that body. But we're told in the scriptures that we will still know that we've come from different nations, in different tribes, in different tongues, in different languages. I remember a few weeks ago being in the presence of a guy that said, Dave, the beautiful thing about heaven is that heaven will be colorblind. I'm like, no, it, not, no, it won't. Heaven will not be colorblind. Heaven will be color-filled. And to be colorblind means that we have to ignore certain things about one another to accept one another and love each other. You see, our culture right now is real interested in diversity that is bred through the context of tolerance. But tolerance is not in the vocabulary of heaven. Love is in the vocabulary of heaven. And heaven is not interested in getting white people to like brown people or brown people to like Asian people. Heaven is interested in all people learning to love all people as Christ himself has poured out his blood for all people. And when we find ourselves in Christian unity with people that don't look like us, we're getting a foretaste of what it is that we're going to experience for all of life. And it's an amazing thing. Several weeks ago, I'm in India with 3,000 people from 29 different nations, and every day, a different worship team from a different country would get up, and they would lead us in songs, in their dialect, and in their language, and it was one of the most beautiful pictures of heaven that I've ever experienced. But can I just, can I just say what it is for a second? Like in Nashville, let's get a little more specific, at Ethos, man, we have a long way to go in this area. And we're so divided, not because of preference, but because of sin and because of brokenness. And I'm just wondering if in the context of this room, if there will be some people courageous enough to let heaven break in there. Because in heaven, man, there's worship and there's redemption and there's unity amidst diversity and there's participation. I love the way he ends. Look at verse 10. He says, because you've made us to be a kingdom of priests, and we exist to serve our God and to reign upon the earth. I love this, this picture of heaven, this full invitation to be participants with God in the extension of his reign and rule right here on earth. You know, that, that the kingdom of God is not for spectators the kingdom of God is for participants, and whether you're a, a stay-at-home mom or a mechanic or a counselor or a physical therapist or a professor or a teacher or a CEO or a coach or a student, or you don't know what it is that you're doing with your life, whatever you are doing vocationally, your calling is the same. It is to pick up the banner of priesthood and to serve God and to extend His glory. And that's not just something that we do here and now. It's what we do forevermore. I go, do you have the eyes to see? Jesus says, good news, the kingdom of heaven is close. It's close. You can reach out and touch it. This is the way I want you to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If heaven were before you this morning, would you be able to recognize it? And I think this is what the Lord is inviting us into. 
And so this morning, we're going to spend our time, we're going to spend our time praying into this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going we're to pray that God would make us worshipers and that God would give us hearts for redemption and that God would give us hearts for unity and that God would unleash the gifts in this room. But before we get into any of those prayers of petition, we're going to start with prayers of thanksgiving because we've seen this. We've been standing on the aisle and some of you have just haven't had the opportunity to notice it yet. And so before we ask God for anything else, we're going to spend some time asking God or thanking God for what it is that he's already done. So I want to invite you. I'm going to close, let's close our eyes. I'm going to pray over us. And we're going to enter into a time of prayer together and into a time of communi- communion. And then we're going to begin asking God to do what only God can do. Father, I love you and I thank you. I thank you for who you are and I thank you for what you're doing. God, I thank you for all of the ways that heaven has already begun to break in all around us. God, I thank you for the ways that you're aligning our hearts around you in this season. I thank you for the way that you are redeeming us, Lord, and helping us step into uh, the victory that you've already given us on the cross. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you're beginning to, to open up our hearts to those that aren't like us and the way that you're beginning to slowly but surely diversify our family. God, I thank you for the ways that you're raising gifts up in the church. God, we just want to spend this time in worship right now just thanking you for who you are and what it is that you're doing and what it is that you've already done. Thank you, Lord, for being among us this morning as we pray. Lord, would you begin to take our will and our wants and exchange it for your will and your ways? Lord, I pray that things would literally, literally, Lord, be on earth as they are in heaven, and that you'd use our church and you'd use our lives to help usher those things in. Lord, I pray that in our prayer time today, you would open up our eyes collectively to see what you see, to care about what you care about, and to celebrate and to mourn over the things that you celebrate and mourn. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this space to be in your presence this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.